We're moving along real fine. Uh, we are dealing with principle number seven. And uh, so I hope that everything that we've been studying has been a blessing and that it's going to help us in our personal study of Scripture. Now, in the next hour, we are going to study the topic titled The Son, God, and the number 666. We're going to do a comparison between Daniel 3 and Revelation 13. And we're going to see that Jesus is not only a spiritual deliverer from sin, but at the end of time, Jesus will have to be a deliverer, a physical, literal deliverer from death, because God's people will be under the sentence of death. So we're going to follow this material very closely, and uh, I know that you all have this material, so uh, let's go to it, the Son God and the number 666. Now, we all know about the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar received in Daniel chapter 2. He received the dream of the golden head and the breast and arms of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay, the stone that hit the feet and broke the image into smithereens, and then the stone became a great mountain. In this dream, God was showing Nebuchadnezzar the future, not only of his kingdom, he was showing him the future of the world, basically. And when God did this, Nebuchadnezzar was not a happy camper because he believed that Babylon was going to exist forever. And so by the advice of his religious advisors, he decided that he would build an image just like the one that he had seen in his dream, but with one difference. And that is that instead of having different metals, the image would be totally and completely of gold. And so he built this gigantic image that is referred to in Daniel chapter 3. It was a direct act of rebellion on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. He was saying, you say that my, my uh, kingdom is only going to be the head of gold? Well, I have news for you. My kingdom is all of gold and it will exist forever. The two chapters are linked by certain words. The word gold is used in both of these chapters. The word image is identical in both chapters. And the expression set up that is used in both of these chapters is identical as well. You remember that in chapter 2, God said that he would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. So Nebuchadnezzar sets up this gigantic image saying that it's not going to be in that way. Now the first thing that we want to take a look at is the Old Testament type. The Old Testament story becomes the foundation for the New Testament application, just like we've been studying. Uh, you know, we, we took a look at the rock, uh, and we took a look at the manna, and we noticed that these Old Testament types are fulfilled on a broader scale in the New Testament. The same is true with the story of Daniel chapter 3. What was the ruling power in Daniel chapter 3? It was Babylon. You can notice this in Daniel 3 verse 1. I'm not going to read all of the verses because we don't have the time to do so. And God's people at this time were captive in Babylon. This is known as the 70-year captivity. Have you ever heard of the 70-year captivity? So the ruling power is Babylon, and God's people are in captivity in Babylon. You can read that in Jeremiah 51 and verse 45. Now we all know that Nebuchadnezzar for a while lived like a beast, didn't he? He thought he was a beast, he acted like a beast, 
and he ate grass like an ox. You know, he became a vegan. (laughs) And perhaps that, you know, uh, he became a vegan and that helped give him clarity of thought because he came out of it at the end of the seven years. Uh, I'm not making any theological application to that, by the way. But but he went and uh, he acted like a beast. And he grew big nails. And he had, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, the Bible says. And he thought that he was a beast. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the beast, so to speak, raised up what? He raised up an image. And he commanded everyone to worship the image that he had raised up. And he said, anyone who does not worship this image that I have raised up here in Babylon will be what? Will be killed. Now let's study a little bit about this particular image in Daniel chapter 3. If what Herodotus, uh, the, the Greek historian, has to say is true, the image weighed 800 talents of gold, which would be equivalent to 30 tons of gold. That is a lot of gold. Now there's a few details that we need to take, take into account when we discuss the dimensions and the composition of this image. First of all, we know that the sexagesimal system of numeration originated in Babylon. What do you say? You say, what is the sexagesimal system? It's the system based on the number six. You know, like for example, we have 60 seconds, we have 60 minutes, we have 24 hours, we have 360 days, we have 360 degrees, that that reflect the circle, the entire circle of space. All of that sexagesimal system comes from ancient Babylon. Now, the, the Babylonians divided the universe into 360 degrees of space. And they divided the year into 360 days. So in other words, the whole circle of space was 360 degrees, and the whole cycle of time of the year was 360 days. Now it's interesting that the Babylonians, what they did, is that they would place one god of their pantheon to rule over 10 degrees of space and over 10 days of time. And so the 36 gods of the pantheon each ruled over 10 days and 10 degrees, and of course, 36 times 10 is what? Is 360. So these gods basically ruled over all time and over all space. Now the sum total of the numbers 1 through 36 is very interesting. If you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 all the way up to the number 36, the result is 666. And so when the Babylonians placed uh, one god to rule over 10 degrees of space and over 10 days of time, and all 36 gods ruled over all space and all time, the summary number in which all of the 36 gods were contained was the number 666. Now there was one god that was not included among the 36. He was the great god above all gods. His name was Marduk, and his number was 666, because he was the ruler over all of the gods. And through them he was ruler over all time 
and over all space. Now the Babylonian priestly system had an interesting way of expressing this idea of Marduk, whose number is 666, ruling over the 36 gods, each ruling over 10 degrees of space and 10 days of time, representing the fact that they ruled over all space and over all time. The priests of Babylon used amulets or medallions on a chain around their necks, and I have pictures of these that I can show you. The medallions were made of pure gold, because gold is the color of the sun. In fact, the ancients called gold the dew of the sun, because in a pre-scientific society they believed that uh, gold had dripped down from the sun. It's no coincidence that in Isaiah 14 verse 4, Babylon is called the golden kingdom, and that in Daniel 2, the symbol for Babylon is gold. Because gold is the color of Babylon. And the sun god is the god Marduk, whose number is 666. And he is the summary number of the numbers 1 through 36. He rules over all the pantheon that rules over all space and over all time. Now it's interesting to notice that these amulets were round. What shape is the sun? The sun is round. And they were made of gold which is the color of the sun. Now in the middle of these amulets, uh, there was a square, a large square, and inside that large square were 36 smaller squares with the numbers 1 through 36, never repeated within those smaller squares within that large square. In other words, you have the 36 gods of the pantheon in Babylon represented by this square with 36 smaller squares in the middle or inside that larger square. The interesting thing is that underneath this uh, large square with the 36 squares frequently you find uh, the number 666, which is the summary number of all of the 36 numbers that appear in the squares. Now, if you look at the obverse side of the medallion, because it not only had one side, it had also uh, some information on the obverse side or on the opposite side, many times what you find is a raging lion with wings. And the raging lion, of course, is yellow. And his mane forms the rays of the sun. Have you ever seen a lion when, he, when he's infuriated? His mane stands up and his face looks like the sun. And so it's interesting that in Daniel chapter 7 you have a lion and what does the lion have? The lion has wings. And so, and so Daniel is speaking within the context that he lives in. Nebuchadnezzar would have easily identified with, with what Daniel was presenting uh, from the dream that he had. Now, there's more information too, and that is that the sign of the zodiac, which by the way, the signs of the zodiac come from ancient Babylon, the sign of the zodiac that rules over the hottest period of the year is Leo the lion, from August 23, from July 23 to August 22. Very interesting, why would you have Leo the lion governing this, during this period? Simply because it is the hottest period of the year. 
It's when the sun shines the brightest. Is there any relationship between the sun and ancient Babylon? You better believe there is. Now, the Romans acquired much of their religious system from ancient Babylon, but they established a different number system. They established that all of the numbers would be written with six specific letters of the alphabet. And you say, no, there's actually seven. There's an I, there's a V, there's an X, there's an L, there's a D, and there's an M. There's a C, that's a hundred, yes, and then there's an M. But the M did not exist in the original numerical system. It was added during the Middle Ages. The way in which it was written before that was that they would place two Ds side by side. In other words, the Romans only established a number system with six characters from the alphabet. And lo and behold, if you add those six numbers, 1 plus 5 plus 10 plus 50 plus 100 plus 500, the total is 666. So basically what I'm saying is that this image that Nebuchadnezzar raised up of pure gold whose dimensions is 60 by 6. Do you know how much 60 by 6 is? 360 was actually a solar symbol in ancient Babylon. It was an image in honor of Marduk, the sun god. So whoever worshipped the image would be worshipping what? Would be worshipping the sun god whose number is 666. Now, what was the primary issue involved in this conflict in the Valley of Dura? Clearly, the issue has to do with what? With worship. That is the central issue has to do with worship. In fact, the word worship in Daniel chapter 3 is used 10 times, and you have it in your material. It's used in verses 5 through 7, verses 10 through 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 18, and verse 28. Almost ad nauseum is the word worship used in the chapters, repeated over and over again, because the issue is over worship. Will you worship the image who represents the sun god, whose number is 666, or will you worship God the Creator? That is the big issue in the Valley of Dura. Is the law of God also involved? Of course it is. Which table of the law is particularly involved here? It is the first table of the law. Would it be having other gods before God if uh, the young men had bowed to worship the image? Of course. Does the second commandment forbid them from worshiping idols? Absolutely. Does the fourth commandment says only to honor the Creator? Absolutely. This trial had to do with the first table of the law. It had to do with worship. It had to do with the commandments of God versus the commandments of men. Now, is the Sabbath involved indirectly? Of course it is. We worship the Creator. We worship God because He's what? The Creator. And what is the sign of the Creator? The sign of the Creator is the Holy Sabbath. So the primary issue is an issue of worship and also an issue having to do with whether the commandments of God would be obeyed or the commandments of men, the commandment that was given by the king. Was there a union of church and state in the Valley of Dura? 
Yes, there was. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. We'll read a few of these verses. Daniel chapter 3, and let's read verse 2. Daniel 3 and verse 2. This is the king, and he's making a religious decree. It says there, And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Are these all political positions? Yes, they are. To come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all of the administrators of the kingdom of Babylon are called to the dedication of this image and to worship this image. And incidentally, they're presented in order of rank in this verse. We don't have uh, time to go into all of the ranks of uh, uh, civil officials in Babylon, but they're all in order. So this is a case of the civil power enforcing a religious decree or establishing religion. To refuse to worship was considered treason against the civil power. Daniel 3 and 6 are illustrations, this is important, of the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. You say, how is that? Let me ask you, was Nebuchadnezzar the king? Yes. Was he establishing a religious observance? Yes, he was establishing religion. And everybody had to worship the way he said. What does the first clause of the First Amendment have to say? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. But Daniel 6, which we're not going to study, Daniel in the lion's den, that uh, command by the king violated the second clause of the First Amendment, nor forbidding the free exercise thereof. Because in Daniel 6, the king is not establishing religion, he's forbidding the free exercise of religion, saying you can't pray in this certain way. And so you see in these stories of Daniel 3 what happens when the United States will violate the First Amendment by establishing religious observances and by forbidding the free exercise of religion. People will then lose the third clause, which is full civil rights. So let's go back here then. There was a union of church and state. Was this decree universal as far as that time was concerned? Absolutely. Notice what we find in verse 4, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, notice the terminology, O peoples, nations, and languages. At the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So you'll notice here that the decree of worship was universal. It included all the political leaders, and it included the multitudes, the nations, and the tongues. Does that sound familiar when you connect it with Revelation, that terminology? Absolutely. Did music play a vital role in this conflict in the Valley of Dura? Do you think music is going to have any role to play in the end time as well? We're going to make an application of all of this. We're just studying the historical type now. Now, was a death decree given against those who did not worship the image of the beast, so to speak? There was a death decree. In fact, notice Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 6. Here it comes through very clearly. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning 
fiery furnace. And that is repeated in verse 11, in verse 15, and in verse 19 once again. There was a death decree against those who did not worship the image in honor of the sun god, whose number is 666. Was there a faithful but insignificant remnant who refused to worship? Were they in the majority? No, they were in the minority. Notice verse 12, Daniel chapter 3 verse 12. There are certain Jews from uh, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods. Ah, so, so was this image set up in honor of the gods of Babylon? Absolutely. They do not serve your gods or what? Or worship the gold image which you have set up. There was a faithful remnant. And of course, they were the only ones resisting the supremacy of Nebuchadnezzar. If they could be wiped from the face of the earth, the triumph of Nebuchadnezzar would be complete. Now who were the instigators? Who were the instigators uh, who accused the three young men to the civil power? It was the religious leaders of Babylon that accused them to the king. Notice Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verses 9 through 12. Daniel chapter 3 verse 9. It says, they spoke and said, and these are the, um, these are the wise men of Babylon, so called. Uh, they spoke and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship the, the, shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So who are the accusers of the remnant? The religious leaders. In other words, the church is appealing to the state and saying, you have to eradicate these three young men. Now, was there a shaking in the valley of Dura? Do you think those were on, the only three Jews there? Absolutely not. When Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and his three friends captive to Babylon, he left King Zedekiah to rule in Jerusalem. You remember that? He left Zedekiah to rule in Jerusalem. Now we know something very interesting. I, I don't know this for absolute certain, but we do know this, that King Zedekiah in 594 B.C. made a trip to Babylon. It is inconceivable that Zedekiah would not have gone to the dedication of the image because everyone was required to be present there. Is it just possible that that trip in 594 B.C. was for the dedication of the image? There's a possibility. Furthermore, there were other Hebrew worthies that were taken to Babylon. They were taught in the schools of Babylon and they had positions in the kingdom, didn't they? Where were they in the time of crisis? Undoubtedly, they bowed before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There were only three faithful young men. Now Nebuchadnezzar attempted to entice and intimidate the remnant who kept the commandments of God and worshipped only him. And the king took three steps, if you read the story. First of all, he tried to get the men to worship the image by fascination. That is the impressive worship scene. You can imagine what it must have been like. Do you know how, do you know how much 60 times 6 is? 
I mean, that, that, that's, that's a huge image. And so everybody is there to, to worship this image, and all of the dignitaries are there, and it's just an impressive scene with, with a band, with the best music. And so the devil, through Nebuchadnezzar, tries to fascinate the young men into worshiping the image. The second thing that he uses is intimidation and threats. He says, if you don't worship this image, you can be thrown into the fiery furnace. And when intimidation did not work, what was the final solution? The final solution was to execute them. So he uses three methods. First of all, fascination by the glory of the scene. Secondly, intimidation and threats. And in the third place, throwing them into the fiery furnace to eradicate them. Ellen White makes an insightful remark about Nebuchadnezzar's body language when the young men said that they were not going to worship. She states that after the king threatened to throw the young men into the furnace, with hand stretched upward in defiance, he boastfully declared, and what God shall be able to deliver you from my hands? In fact, she says that his face looked like the face of a demon. And you have these three young men alone in the valley of Dura, saying, we will not worship, we will not break God's holy commandments. Wow! Loyal to God, because they had a covenant relationship with Jesus. Hear the covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the covenant formula. And so when Nebuchadnezzar threatens them, and he tries to fascinate them with the scene, we find that the three young men have an answer for the king. It's found in verses 16 through 18. Verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. That word deliver is a key word in the book of Daniel. Do you know it only appears in Daniel 3, in Daniel 6, and in Daniel 11? which means that they are connected. And so verse 17 says, If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand. But if not, do they serve God for the loaves and the fishes? No. They're willing to serve Him even if God doesn't come through. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods. See, the image was a sign that they were serving the gods of Babylon. And the great god was the sun god Marduk. Nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Period. What was the reaction of the king? Hmm, notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. Does that sound familiar? Then the dragon was what? Enraged with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. So it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face, what? On his face changed. Toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And you have this statement by Ellen White uh, in Bible Commentary, volume 4, page 1169, where she says, Satanic attributes made his countenance appear as the countenance of a demon. Wow, that's amazing. 
You see, the problem is Nebuchadnezzar made the same mistake that Pharaoh made at the Red Sea. <laughs> he assumed that he was fighting. Uh, he assumed that he was fighting these three young men when he was really fighting against the Lord. Pharaoh didn't realize that by fighting against Israel, he was fighting against the Lord of Israel in the person of his people. This is why Moses had said at the edge of the Red Sea, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In fighting the people of the Lord, the king was fighting against the Lord of the people. Did a time of trouble ensue for the three young men? Ooh, terrible time of trouble. The young men faced the beast, his image, and the civil rulers without flinching. I'm sure that it was a severe test for them to think about being thrown into the fiery furnace. And yet their loyalty to God was stronger than life itself. And of course, we just read that the king heated the furnace seven times hotter than ever before. And by the way, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar had a thermometer. I don't think thermometers existed back then. What it means, the number seven means that he heated the, the kiln as hot as it would be to its maximum heat, in other words. Did the young men go through the tribulation? They most certainly did. In fact, Ellen White says that they claimed the promise of Isaiah 43 verse 2 of going through the fire and not being burned. They claimed that promise that already existed at that time. And so now you come to the climax of the story. You know, in our Sabbath school, we say, we need to dare to be a Daniel. We should dare to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but you know what? We make the heroes out of those who were not the heroes. Because if it not, had not been for Jesus, they would have been cooked. The hero of this story are not the three young men. The hero of this story is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He delivers not only from the spiritual malady of sin, he will deliver his people from literal death in the time of trouble when the wicked come against God's people. Notice Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And uh, let's read beginning with verse 15. Ja Daniel chapter 3. And we already read verse 15. Let's go down to verse, um, let's see, verse 21. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, those who threw them in were slain by the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now comes the climax of the story. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose. See, the, the ropes had been burnt. <laughs> the only thing that was burnt. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Some people say, how did Nebuchadnezzar know what the Son of God looked like? 
Ellen White says it's because Daniel had explained to him before what he looked like. <laughs> so he knew what the Son of God looked like. And by the way, at this point, Jesus was the angel of the Lord. Let's notice verse 25. You'll see it very clearly. It says the Son of God in verse 25, but notice verse 28. It says, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. So who was it, the Son of God or the angel? The angel, the, the Son of God is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He is Michael the archangel, if you please. And so they were delivered. Now, there's a key word in Daniel chapter 3. It's used four times. It's the word deliver. It's used in verse 15, verse 17, verse 28, and verse 29. It is a key word. Who is able to deliver? Jesus is able to deliver from this crisis that took place in the Valley of Dura. Now the question is, is this the end of the story? Absolutely not. This story is going to be repeated on a global scale. Notice the principles of interpretation at the bottom of your page. Literal Israel was literally captive in literal Babylon. The literal king behaved like a literal beast, set up a literal image, commanding everyone literally to bow and worship. Literal Jews refused to literally bow, and therefore they were thrown into a literal fiery furnace and are delivered from the literal flames. This story will be repeated once more, but on a what? But on a global scale. Now let's make the application. What will be the power, according to the book of Revelation, that will be ruling the world before Jesus comes? It is Babylon. The harlot is called Babylon. And she's seated on many waters, on the multitudes, nations, tongues, and peoples. You can read it in Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2, and also verse 5. Will God's people once again be captive in Babylon? Absolutely. Will there be a call for them to come out? Just like in the Old Testament. Absolutely. Revelation chapter 18 verse 4. Come out of her my people. That you do not partake in her sins. Or receive her plagues. Will there be a global power. Who is called the beast. In Revelation 13. See I'm not even reading the verses. Because you know these verses. Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 and 2. Speak about a beast. That comes from the sea. Will this beast have an image made of itself? Absolutely. It's known as the image of the beast. Will it have a mark that has some relationship to the sun? Will this mark be imposed by force? Like in the Old Testament. Absolutely. The mark of the beast is clearly opposite to the seal of God. When the seventh day Sabbath becomes the final test for the world, the seal of God will be the observance of the Sabbath, and the mark of the beast will be the observance of Sunday. Does this involve worship? Yes. If you keep the Sabbath, it is a sign that you worship God, the Creator. If you worship on Sunday, it's a sign that you are worshiping the power that claimed to create Sunday as a day of worship. So it's not the issue of one day versus another. It's the issue of who you are honoring through the day that you are keeping. You are either keeping Sabbath as a sign that you worship the true God, or you're keeping Sunday in honor of the power that claims to have changed God's law from Sabbath to Sunday. 
in contrast to those who worship the beast in his image, will be those who worship the Creator. This is the reason why Revelation 14 verse 7 calls upon the world to worship the Creator. See the first angel's message says worship the Creator, and the third angel's message says don't worship the beast. And worshiping the Creator involves Sabbath observance, because we worship the Creator, and the sign of the Creator is the Sabbath. Notice the connection that Ellen White made between these two stories. Volume 14 of Manuscript Releases, page 91, she says, An idle Sabbath has been set up. Why is it an idle Sabbath? Because it was created by man for worship. Anything that man makes for worship is an idol. It can be a day or it can be an object. So she says, an idol Sabbath has been set up as the golden image was set up in the plains of Dura. There she's making the typological connection. And as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, issued a decree that all who would not bow down and worship this image should be killed, so a proclamation will be made that all who will not reverence the Sunday institution will be punished with imprisonment and what? With imprisonment and death. Does the beast bear any relationship to the number 666? You know that the number of the beast is 666. And so there you have a relationship, a connection of the number in Daniel 3 with the number in Revelation chapter 13. Now somebody might say, Pastor, is it really the same to worship the sun as it is to worship on the day of the sun? And I answer the, in principle, yes, it's the same. Let me put it this way. Who created the sun? God did. Did he create it for worship? So what happens if you convert it into an object of worship? What is that called? Idolatry. Who created the first day of the week? Did he create it for worship? So what happens if you make it a day of worship? That's idolatry. It doesn't matter whether it's an object or a day. Anything that man makes for worship that God did not create for worship is idolatry. And so that's why Ellen White can call Sunday the idol Sabbath, and she can connect it to the golden image in the valley of Dura. Ellen White, in volume 7 of the Bible Commentary, page 976, says history will be repeated. False religion will be exalted. The first day of the week, a common working day, possessing no sanctity whatever, will be set up as was the image at Babylon. All nations and tongues and peoples will be commanded to worship this spurious Sabbath. This is Satan's plan to make of no account the day instituted by God and given to the world as a memorial of creation. Is the conflict at the end of time a conflict over worship? You read Revelation 13, folks? Read Revelation 13, the entire chapter. Time and again, the word worship appears. Revelation 13, verse 4, verse 8, verse 12, verse 15, and then chapter 14, verse 7, and verse 9. Refer to worship. The end time conflict will be over worship. Will it also involve the commandments of God? Yes, because when you deal with worship, you're dealing with the commandments, because the first four commandments have to do with worship. That's why Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And why is the dragon enraged? Because there's a group that what? That keep the commandments 
of God. Will there be a union of church and state at the end of time? Babylon with the civil powers. Yes, the harlot fornicates with the kings of the earth, and the harlot's name is Babylon. Notice the statement from Great Controversy, page 607. The church appeals to the strong arm of civil power. And in this work, papists and Protestants unite. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. They will be threatened with fines and imprisonment, and some will be offered positions of influence and other rewards and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. But their steadfast answer is, show us from the word of God our error. The same plea that was made by Luther under similar circumstances. In Great Controversy, page 592, she also states, the dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? All classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we'll, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Will there be a union of church and state? Yes, Revelation 17 says so, and the spirit of prophecy confirms this in the book Great Controversy. Will a death decree be uttered against God's people? Yes, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15 refers to this death decree. Whoever does not worship the image will be killed. It says there in verse 15 of Revelation 13, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. Was there a death decree in the Old Testament against those who did not worship the image of the beast? Yes. Is that going to happen at the end of time? Yes. Is it going to be a literal image? A great big statue? No. Is this going to be a literal beast like Nebuchadnezzar acted like a literal beast? Is it going to be a literal furnace? A kiln? Absolutely not. In the end time it's fulfilled spiritually and globally. In other words, the valley of Dura is universalized. It is globalized in the end time. The remnant is not only three individuals, it will be a whole people gathered all over the world. Notice Great Controversy, page 615. This is an argument based on John 11:51. You remember when uh, Caiaphas said it's necessary for one man to die and not that the nation perish? Ellen White says that argument is going to be used again to save the United States of America from disappearing. She says, this argument will appear conclusive, and a decree will finally be issued against those who hallow the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Romanism in the old world and apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course towards those who honor all the divine precepts. 
She also says on page 604 of Great Controversy, Fearful is the issue to which the world is to be brought. The powers of earth, uniting to war against the commandments of God, will decree that all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, shall conform to the customs of the church by the observance of the false Sabbath. All who refuse compliance will be visited with civil penalties, and it will finally be declared that they are deserving of death. Will this be a universal decree? It most certainly be, will be a universal decree. It says it will go to the whole earth, to the entire world. The whole world wandered after the beast, is what Revelation uh, chapter 13 says. In fact, Great Controversy 6.15 confirms what we find in Revelation uh, 13 and verses 15 and 16. Ellen White says, As the Sabbath has become the special point of controversy throughout Christendom, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of the Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal execration. Universal execration. In fact, Ellen White says that when the United States imposes a Sunday law, every country on the globe will be led to follow its example. Every country on the globe will be led to follow its example. Don't ask me how it's going to happen, but it is going to happen. We can be absolutely certain of that. How it's going to happen in the Muslim countries? Well, God knows. You know, how was the Berlin Wall going to fall? Nobody even believed that it could happen. And it happened overnight, almost. So the final movements will be rapid ones. And these things will occur. Will music and external display play a significant role in the end time? Absolutely. Notice this statement that Ellen White makes concerning the music of the Roman Catholic Church. Did you watch the funeral of John Paul II? You could not help but be awed. In fact, I heard somebody call uh, on the radio, a talk show host, and said, man, when I see this on television, all this majestic music and the vestments and everything, he says, I'm a Protestant, but I'm going to become a Catholic. Great controversy, 566-67, because uh, notice what Ellen White says about Roman Catholicism. It's not, it's not something that is unattractive. It has ceremonial, it has pomp and circumstance. It's attractive. Listen to what she says. Many Protestants suppose that the Catholic religion is unattractive and that its worship is a dull, meaningless round of ceremony. Here they mistake. While Romanism is based upon a deception, it is, it is not a coarse and clumsy imposture. The religious service of the Roman church is a most impressive ceremonial. Its gorgeous display and solemn rites fascinate the senses of the people and silence the voice of reason and of conscience. The eye is charmed. Magnificent churches, imposing processions, golden altars, jeweled shrines, choice paintings, and exquisite sculpture appeal to the love of beauty. The ear is also captivated. The music is unsurpassed. The rich notes of the deep-toned organ, blending with the melody of many voices as it swells through the lofty domes and pillared aisles of her grand cathedrals, cannot fail to impress the mind with awe and reverence. The outward splendor, pomp, and ceremony that only mocks the longings of the sin-sick soul is an evidence of inward corruption. The religion of Christ needs not such attractions to recommend it. In the light shining from the cross, true Christianity appears 
so pure and lovely that no external decorations can enhance its worth. It is the beauty of holiness, a meek and quiet spirit, which is of value with God. So, are people going to be wowed by the spectacular beauty and pomp of a system just like in the Valley of Dura with the music and with the external things? Absolutely. Now, you know, Ellen White once visited the cathedral in Milan. I was just there last year. I was very interested to visit the cathedral. It's, it's incredible. It took about 600 years to build. It's just unbelievably beautiful. And Ellen White wanted to visit it, and she did visit it. And she wrote that she was very impressed by it. But then she summarized her experience by saying that it was just one vast pile of extravagance. <laughs> so at first she was impressed, but at the end she says, it's just one vast pile of extravagance. Will God have a faithful remnant that will stand in this crisis in the end time? Absolutely. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In fact, in Revelation chapter 15, if you go with me there, Revelation chapter 15 and verses 2 through 4, you're going to find a group that is victorious over the beast, his image, and his mark, and the number of his name. It says in verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the what? The victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So God will have a group that is victorious over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Praise the Lord for that. Will there be a shaking at the end of time? Will most of God's people, when crunch time comes, bow before the image of the beast? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 24 says that when this crisis comes, the love of many will grow cold, and many will become scandalized at the name of Jesus, and they will forsake the, the armies of the Lord. Now Ellen White, in harmony with the Bible, had this to say. She said, to stand in defense of the truth and righteousness when the majority forsakes us. When the what? When the majority forsakes us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. At this time we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. The nation will be on the side of the great rebel. And in the next quotation she says, a large class who professed faith in the third angel's message, in other words they were once Adventist believers, but has not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. Who will be particularly guilty in accusing the people of God? It will be the religious leaders, just like in the Valley of Dura. You see, now where does it say that? Well, let's read the second statement here that we have in our material. As the controversy extends into new fields, and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, Satan is astir. 
power, the power attending the message will only madden those who oppose it. The clergy will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut away the light, lest it should shine upon their flocks. By every means at their command, they will endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital questions. Will Satan be filled with rage like Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage? Absolutely. In fact, if you read Revelation 13 and verses 3 and 4, a similar question will be asked in the end time as was asked in the Valley of Dura by King Nebuchadnezzar. Revelation chapter 13, and I'm going to read verse 3 and verse 4. It says there, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon and gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, now here's the same question, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And what is the answer? God says, I will. <laughs> and of course, God will be victorious. Will God's people go through a severe time of trouble? Absolutely. The worst time of trouble in the history of the world. There will not be a time of trouble such as that one. There has not been and there will not be. And God's people will go through the furnace of fire. Notice what the fiery furnace represents. Great Controversy, page 621. Great Controversy, 621. Ellen White says, speaking about the remnant, their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but the refiner will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. See, she uses the symbolism of the furnace for the trial of God's people. She says, God's love for His children during the period of the severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity. But it is needful for them to be placed where? In the furnace of fire. Their earthliness must be consumed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. Folks, Jesus Christ will personally intervene to deliver His people. At that time, Michael shall stand up, that great prince that stands watch over the children of your people. And there will be a time of trouble such there as there never was since there was a nation. But at that time, your people shall be what? What's the key word? Your people shall be delivered everyone who is found written in the book. God will deliver His people. Jesus will personally intervene. What will God demand? God will demand absolute unswerving loyalty. And when do we form this loyalty? When the crisis comes, we say, okay, emergency. No, it has to be now that we have to form this covenant relationship with Christ, and we can be sure that if we form a covenant with Jesus, Jesus is going to protect us. And even if we should die, because some people will die in the little time of trouble before the close of probation, no sweat, because Jesus is going to resurrect those people in a special resurrection. So it's just a little moment of rest, that's all. But Jesus is still going to fulfill His covenant with His people. He is still going to resurrect them, and they are still going to leave with Jesus throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Notice this last statement, Prophets and Kings, page 512 and 513 as we close. The season of distress before God's people will call for a faith that will not falter. 
His children must make it manifest that He is the only object of their worship, and that no consideration, not even that of life itself, can induce them to make the least concession to false worship. To the loyal heart, the commands of sinful finite men will sink into insignificance beside the word of the eternal God. Truth will be obeyed, though the result be imprisonment or exile or death. That's the kind of faith that God's people are going to need. And incidentally, do you know that Ellen White calls Sunday the idle Sabbath time and again in her writings? Because it is a Sabbath made in the shape by man. It's not made for worship by God. Uh, let me just read one of these statements. Uh, it's found in 9 Testimonies 2.11. She says, The Sabbath question is one that will demand great care and wisdom in its presentation. Much of the grace and power of God will be needed to cast down the idol that has been erected in the shape of a false Sabbath. Interesting. It's a man-made Sabbath for worship. That's what makes it idolatry. Like the sun was a man-made object for worship. That is also idolatry. It doesn't matter if it's the sun or if it's the day of the sun. If it's made by man for worship, that is idolatry. But God has made His holy Sabbath for His people to keep. And it will be the sign of loyalty of the people of God to Him. And they will say, we'd rather die than not spend that time with our Lord and Savior Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.